This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. and higher filling it with song filling it with song they sound quite mad don't they my guest is Rick Halterman he's the author of Curriculum of the Soul and Luminescence of the Ordinary So we're here to talk about worldviews, which is such an interesting topic. And you've been interviewing a number of people. And of course, I think you've been doing this for some time, people that have particular worldviews, but you really kind of hit on a, you know, a goldmine here in the book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, you know, with Four Arrows and and Darsha Narvez. And then, of course, you followed up with Aja Suler, and she had you know, another very interesting kind of worldview. So tell me where this has been taking you in terms of how you are looking at the world personally. I like that you use the term finding a gold mine. I have really sunk my teeth into this, so to speak. I had never really romanticized the Native American traditions because I think like most people, I was brought up on these old stories of how they were just as susceptible to violence and warring among their tribes. And it turns out that most of that is not true, that, of course, in any society, there are going to be people who are messed up, you know, that cause problems. But, you know, the indigenous worldview, Native American indigenous worldview, to a large degree, was a revelation because... I found that it aligned perfectly with everything I have come to aspire to or hope for or dream about in, you know, the more beautiful world that I would like to live in and that I know in my heart is actually possible. Not necessarily that we'll get there anytime soon because our world, as you and our listeners well know, is incredibly screwed up and appears to be getting worse every day. Mm. So one of the things, we were doing a little emailing back and forth recently, and you had brought up the issue, well, how could we adopt this kind of kinship worldview in our modern world? Especially when there's like over 7 billion human beings on this planet who are all subject to this modern Western worldview and are not doing anything significant or not doing anything that's effectively changing what's happening in the world. So 
this has created quite a conundrum and kind of point of tension between this kinship worldview, a worldview that, that I very much feel aligned with and would love to see, and this Western modern worldview, which has created capitalism, scarcity, slavery, genocide, you know, American politics, which is devolving into civil war at this point, with no end in sight. In fact, it appears that it's on the downhill slide still, in addition to environmental degradation and climate change, which is also accelerating and looks like it's going to potentially mean the end of the world, at least as we know it, and the changing of this amazingly beautiful planet, this really island of paradise in the galaxy into an environment that may not be very hospitable to human life and to most of the life on this planet. So, yeah. How are you dealing with all of that? I mean, how do you... <laughs> How, do, how are you thinking about these things? How are you feeling about all this stuff? <laughs> well, on one hand, um, I'm, I'm right with you, Tonio, because you know, I, I know what was the, the, the author you had, which was on, uh, it was the book Against um, Modernity. And it was talking about that man's book and, and all the, the details in there. And all of that is a reality. And you know, I think that one can, we've discussed this before, can get quite despairing pretty quickly when you just look at that side of the scale. You know, it's very easy to get lost in that place. And I certainly do in the moments, you know, when I look at certain things happening on the planet. Then there's another part of me that was wondering, you know, if we see this, I don't know if you want to say more mystically or more metaphorically, so what is this process, this sort of devolution that's taking place? Is this the chaos that is what usually happens prior to the rebirth of something? And perhaps this is why, you know, talking about this book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, which is, so what would be the new place that might be evolving in the process? Because I can get too lost in the despair, and that's when I end up going into the woods and wanting to see the wildflowers, things like that this time of year, go swim laps. So it's just not my nature to want to stay in the negative place because that's almost too easy in a sense, and it's too overwhelming as well for me, at least. So I keep trying to look for these other perspectives. You know, that's why I did my own book, you know, Curriculum of the Soul. So that was another worldview which really incorporates quite a bit of stuff from the kinship there you know there are differences and you know the bottom line is i think with all these worldviews that we're talking about how are we going to be back in touch with nature how are we going to be in sync with nature because we have so departed from a lot of the precepts that are presented in restoring the, the kinship worldview. It's like, I love that first precept that's in there, which talks about when children in indigenous tribe in America hit about the age of six, they were let, let go out in the woods at night 
and try and discover their spirit animal, if I remember how that precept worked. And, you know, again, this kind of combined with that other precept of non-interference, let them go experience nature. And even if they didn't find a spirit animal or whatever vision happening out there on a particular night, they were still allowed to have that freedom to go do that. So there was at a very young age, this relationship getting established, which was really so essential. You know, right now, a lot of nature, I think, on our planet is looked either as for exploitation or for recreation, rather than as the kind of resource the indigenous, you know, how they would perceive it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I'm interested in that discussion that you you started this last train of thought that, you know, what we're going through now is is like the storm before or the crisis before the rebirth. And it's interesting how that book Weird by Ramon Elani, he took a very, you could say a dark kind of pessimistic view of where we're headed, that nature is merciless in that sense that we have been moving so far away from the natural way of things that the pendulum naturally must swing back to restore balance and that the restoration of balance would come in the form of destruction of a world that has based itself and been built upon the opposite of everything that nature represents and is. And then my latest interview and book that I read, Mirrors in the Earth by Asia Suler, she actually takes almost the opposite perspective. She has a very optimistic worldview about that. I mean, she acknowledges the same cycles of birth and death and destruction and rebirth. She fully acknowledges that we go through these kind of cycles of crisis to move into a new rebirth, but she is much more optimistic about it, even though she does acknowledge that there's no guarantee that we're going to continue as part of life on this planet. And she also brings in the, the consciousness and life of the planet herself, and that Mother Earth will continue on, you know, in whatever way she does and adapts to whatever changes we have on life because you know things happen you know the earth has been hit by meteorites and we've had volcanoes and earthquakes that have had major catastrophic effects on the planet and yet somehow or other life goes on i mean at the very least we have fungal mycelial networks living underground, which can survive meteor catastrophes like the one that wiped out the dinosaurs and nuclear winters from volcanic eruptions. And also, you know, how fungi can adapt to conditions and create both life that can survive those conditions, as well as create new iterations of itself that have a remedial and balancing effect upon the environment. So 
I don't necessarily see Asia's worldview and Ramon Alani's worldview as being that different. It's just that I think he has a darker perspective, less optimistic, whereas Asia's perspective is much more, I would say, love-based and believing and feeling into the benevolent nature of planet Earth, Mother Earth, and that we have a dynamic mutual relationship with her and that Asia believes that the Earth is invested in us, that we are part of this evolving evolution of Mother Earth, part of her consciousness, part of the dream of new possibility, because there is something kind of unique about human beings that we have this kind of consciousness that can dream and create and manifest through dreaming. And in that way, we can play with Mother Earth, although indigenous traditions also believe that all life forms and even inanimate forms also dream in their own way, whether you know we can wrap our minds around things like that or not, and that all things contribute to the evolution of life and and perhaps something beyond what we would consider to be life, because there's more than just quote unquote life going on in this world. What do you think of that? Yeah, I love particularly where Asia was coming from, Asia Suler, which was that the consciousness of the earth, which actually some people might call the divine God, whatever term you really want to use, that the consciousness of the earth is the thing that we should be spending more time paying attention to, you know, sort of like in the Native American point of view, looking towards a great spirit. And what is it that that has to offer us? And to what extent are we willing to tune into that? So I wonder, because, you know, here I am coming from this kind of soul point of view, which ties in very much with what you just said. Everything has a soul from at least my perspective. And this includes the ants that are crawling on my stones outside, including the butterfly moth that is going after some nectar at that particular moment. You know, things like that, or hummingbird moth, that's what it is, that all these souls are here and that it's this evolution of the souls that's taking place. Now, in the process, the humans in physical form may go by the wayside because we really have not done a great job in terms of paying attention to this larger consciousness and how to be in tune with that consciousness. You know, I'm immediately reminded, remember the story in the book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, when Four Arrows talks about getting, was it leukemia, I think, that he had? He was diagnosed and was facing the possibility of going through chemotherapy, doing the whole thing. And to me, that was very metaphorical to this sort of larger thing that we're talking about on the planet, where there's this kind of illness taking place. He chose what I thought was really a lovely perspective and way of dealing with it. Rather than going the Western medicine route, he took a lot of responsibility on himself, decided to go to Sweat Lodge and try and figure out, so what was this thing going on with his body trying to tell him? And what did he need to do to change his perspective within himself in order to try and clear out what was happening inside his body. And he went through it once successfully, and then he said he came back 
and he went again through the same process. And for him, it was this continual learning process of how is he going to get in sync with this information that keeps showing up. And I think like you were saying, that we're not doing a very good job of trying to get in sync with all of this amazing information that's coming to us at this point, how systems are falling apart, institutions are falling apart, trust is in decline, all these kinds of things. We're not paying a whole lot of attention to say, oh, so what is this telling us? How might we re-navigate so that we can get a little more in sync with what's happening all around us and inside of us? Because in a certain sense, if we're thinking in these larger, like whether it's a consciousness perspective, Tonio, or maybe even a spiritual perspective, how if we're part of this larger body known as the earth, and you know, there's like we're representing a kind of infection, how might that infection be dealt with? And not from the Western medicine point of view of eradication and, you know, like we're just going to try and just move on as quickly as possible. How might we confront these things, these infections that we're creating so that we can become healthy again and not have to do, like I said, this other process of destruction? So I love this whole opportunity of metaphor. And, you know, there's that spiritual thing that I think you suggested with Asia, she said, well, where have we gotten lost in relation to our loving, into our, you know, our living love inside of us? You know, and I think that's where a lot of the indigenous worldview comes about, which was there was an inherent love and relationship with the planet on an ongoing moment to moment, really second to second basis. And when one maintains that kind of loving and respect, Things, as they pointed out, you know, pretty much work out well. And, you know, of course, we could get into a whole conversations of where, you know, Native American tribes are now and, you know, the, the kind of craziness, you know, like here in Taos, you know, like domestic violence is a big deal on the Pueblo. So is alcoholism, addiction, things like that. But that's not really, I think, the focus of our conversation. I'm more interested in this particular worldview and being in sync with this larger consciousness, as Asia pointed out, of the planet. And how are we going to get in line with that? Because, you know, there's a part of me, Tonio, from, again, the soul perspective, maybe humans in a physical form are not going to continue on. So then it presents the idea. So how might our souls evolve without necessarily being attached to a body? Yeah, I was thinking about asking you that very question. So I'm asking you that question because the soul is really the realm of your work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, this again ties in nicely. Remember, there was that lovely precept in Restoring the Kinship Worldview, which talked about circular time. And there's yeah. a lot of things to discuss here, but this ties in very much with the soul, that from this soul perspective, the soul never really dies. The soul just continues on. In fact, there's that, you probably heard that quote from, I don't know who, that says, we're just, the souls are here just having a physical experience. And once the body's gone, the soul's just going to continue on. And it may be on the other side. It may, you know, like from, you know, say from a Hindu point of view, you may come back as a butterfly. You may come back as a virus. Who knows how any of this really actually works. 
but it always continues on. And I think that's part of the, the indigenous perspective, which is that from a circular time point of view, nothing's really quite destroyed. You know, they point out that the linear thing is that there's beginning and there's a middle and there's an end. But from the soul point of view, nothing really does get destroyed because even, you know, our own science talks about, you know, energy that's created simply it can't get destroyed once it's created it's there and then what happens to it exactly and we don't you know science is of course trying to find the answers to that but there's only so much we can do with our particular consciousness so i do believe that things will continue on as asia believes that things will continue on it may not be probably will not be in the form that we're looking at that these particular bodies in the same way that a lot of the coral reefs, you know, the, the bodies of those coral reefs, they're going in this, you know, same place of extinction as well. What will come on the other side? I don't know, because I think my consciousness probably isn't bright enough to really comprehend that far into the future and what could happen because you know there's always that part of us as humans that are like well what if and what about that or you know can 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 i know the answer of the future and you know now we're back to Thich Nhat khan who's just saying just stay here in the present just be here in the present and everything's going to be fine you know that's a really interesting conundrum to sit with you know in each moment we always have that option to be right here right now with whatever is going on and yes we will be fine right here right now but in the next moment <laughs> who knows what will happen and <laughs> it's only it's only when we project ourselves into the future that we get caught up in concern about things like that and yet that's what human life has been all about from our modern perspective worldview and I think a lot of that's related to this really kind of what they call the dominant worldview perspective, which is that there is, you know, the inherent fear of death. So how many experiences can we accumulate prior to, you know, the linear end of the train tracks? You know, or how can we control? How can yes. we better better control the environment, the world around us, so that we aren't destroyed or killed or or don't lose our comfort? We don't have to step out of our comfort zones. Yeah. You know, there's a story of a guy here in Taos who is originally from India. And so he is really has a lot of Hindu influence in his particular worldview. And they were telling a story about being on a raft trip. And there was a point where somebody was in the water, physically in the water, and they were getting swept by a current. So they created kind of a little human chain to rescue this person. It all worked out. But anyhow, this guy who has the Hindu background, he was near the end of the chain and his perspective was really very matter of fact. He goes, well, you know, if we lose a person, they'll just come back and, you know, have another shot at it in the next lifetime anyhow. So <laughs> he had that circular point of view rather than if you think of the overarching fear of death in our culture and what kind of pressure that places on us, because there's not much, if you think about it, not much in our regular curricula that really has a whole lot of discussion concerning, so what do we do with this idea of death? 
the idea that our bodies will in fact fall apart and our hearts are going to stop and then what happens to our consciousness and this is of course where religions tried to step in and you know to some extent that kind of worked out but i would say that there's still a lot of people that of course i you know i think of recklessness i was just when i was driving yesterday i was with a friend and they were talking about you know these kind of windy roads that are along the rio grande here and how people would be passing other people this usually a younger person where you know solid solid double lines where you can't pass you can't see you know more than you know 50 yards ahead of you and people are passing going you know 75 miles an hour and it's like well their fear of death seems to be really pretty minimal but i'd say over <laughs> the overview with our culture is there's such an incredible fear of death and and that's where the very point you just made tonio steps in how are we going to control this existence to almost try and banish this thought and i think that was part of the problem at the front of the pandemic where all of a sudden death became another new reality in a new form i mean we already had it in the forms of cancer and heart disease and all these other ways that you know we figure out how to whether it happens to us biologically or we do ourselves in whatever but there is a whole new way to die and we had to start freaking out about that as well and it's been very interesting in the course of the pandemic how a lot of that fear and a lot of that craziness that was on the front end and i don't know if you've noticed this back there but i noticed this here even my own partner she was for instance if she got a package from ups it would sit outside for a day or two then when she brought it inside she would be scrubbing it down with a disinfectant before she'd even open it all of that's gone now so a lot of these things have really kind of shifted because there was this initial fear at the very beginning of death and how quickly one could die and now that's all changed and relaxed even though in fact we have a more contagious variant than ever you know it's it's so interesting how as a culture we swing we tend to swing wildly from fear of the unknown and all the negative possibilities to complete denial of the impending doom that we're creating and this obliviousness to the responsibility or the effect that we're having on the world around us that let's say a younger person perhaps has a shorter shorted sightedness so that they might speed up and try to pass somebody on a windy road where yeah. it is actually very risky yeah whereas an older person is much less likely to do that and yet we're essentially doing the same thing all the time these days with the world around us yeah that that's exactly right and i think this goes back to that indigenous point of view if one had a continual relationship with nature and i'm talking about every day all the moments of the day that if you had that relationship one could see firsthand like when we had in our previous conversation talking about when the wildfires were still raging here in New Mexico that was just only a ridge away for us to see that every day and there was this interesting kind of i don't know if you call it terror or whatever reaction that people were having to see that right up close or like there's a trail that i love that's up by the ski valley here and i've been following this crew it's this crew of two young people alex and courtney and they've been doing this gorgeous job they work for the forest service and they're cutting all 
the, the there's so many trees that were down, Tonio. I'd say if I was to actually give it a number just up the length of this three or four mile trail, probably talking just the ones that cross the trail, I don't know, 40 or 50 trees at least. And these are not small trees. These are old, like some in some cases, two foot girth. And they're there with hand saws cutting these trees in order to make a way up so people can still hike and get to the higher peaks. I sent you a photo from that just last week. And there I'm reminded every time I go up and I just even, all I do is just look in the forest and I see how many trees have come down and it's either because of disease, but we had that big wind event last December and it is astonishing. Or seeing this year, for instance, I just did a hike a few days ago, went way up high on a ridge and how few wildflowers are showing up this year because of that intense drought that had happened early on in late spring and early summer. So there I'm just continually reminded because I'm making a point of getting out there two, three times a week at least, and then I'm in the water, you know, the other times. And just being present out there, you really can't help but notice this and really start to feel something if you're in any way you know, connected as a human being. So many people aren't out there, Tonio, to really see, oh, look at what changes, because now I can even notice you know, from 20 years how much has changed, where plants have migrated, or like this year has been fascinating because we have this interesting thing which has to do with the Forest Service, that they've been giving grazing permits for generations to you know, a number of families, and they've all been grandfathered. But because the cattle couldn't get out there earlier this year, so much stuff has not been destroyed by cattle. In other words, that we don't have cow pies in the streams. We don't have young aspens that have been you know, gnawed off by the cattle. So many wildflowers, wetlands have been restored because there hasn't been any cattle. And it's really been a delight not to see that. But you notice this when you're out there all the time. And do you have that same experience? And I think one could even do that in their own garden outside your house. Do you have that same experience? Well, I think I've touched on this before, how insulated Vermont is. Vermont has not been that affected by climate change, I would say, except, you know, it is it is getting hotter in the summers. We're having more days over 90 degrees and the winters are getting shorter and getting warmer. I don't think that they've had a dramatic effect on our environment like you've described where you are and yeah. what we're seeing in other parts of the world like California and Colorado and Australia and even in, in Europe like in London and in other parts of the world where they're having very significant record heat waves. I mean, yeah. unprecedented. Aren't you, in, aren't you in not, a drought right now? We're in a relative drought, but it's not like anything that you guys have been experiencing out west. Yeah, we've so, had 20 so years. We essentially, as far as I can tell, and because we don't have, we have very little right-wing Trumpism presence here in Vermont. There is some, but it's very small. So I would say that at least most of us here in Vermont really only see that in the news, in the media. We don't see direct evidence of it around us in, you know, in our face. At the same time, though, I know that like like when we started this conversation, you're still even in, you know, a relatively insulated state. You're still 
ever aware of all this other stuff happening on the planet and doesn't mean just environmentally, but politically, you know, all these things that are really drastically changing so quickly that there's even still that possibility. Because I know that was one of the conundrums with the pandemic. There's been this whole thing of how are we going to get back to normal? And, you know, you and I have already talked about that. It's like, well, normal's gone. You know, just forget that thing. You know, that this is really more just like being living in nature full time. It is a continual process of adaptation and improvisation. And how do we continue doing that? How do you stay agile? Which is kind of a rhetorical question. How do you stay agile in the midst of all these changes taking place around us? Yeah, and I, I think that's where, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's suggestion that this is an even greater opportunity to just rest in the present moment. Yes. Because in the face of catastrophe and seemingly almost inevitable destruction and extinction, or at least the world as we know it, we can either sink into despair and pull our hair out and gnash our teeth and allow ourselves to devolve into, you know, that kind of a response. Or we can take the, the Zen approach of, you know, in the face of catastrophe, allow ourselves to indulge the moment. You know, the koan of the person who falls off the cliff and, and is hanging on by a root, there's a tiger below, and can't climb up, and he sees a ripe strawberry just within reach. And, you know, that's all we have, really. We have, yeah. we, we have that, the opportunity to enjoy what there is in this moment, despite the fact that in the next moment, it may all be gone. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a great story, Tony. In fact, it even shows up in a poem. I can't even recall where it is right now, but maybe one I'm reading this week from Ellen Bass. So back to this, you know, back to the kinship worldview. You know, I think I presented this question to you by email for you to ponder how, you know, I love there's there's a precept which talks about the laws of nature and how by living by the laws of nature, really one can be quite imbalanced with this larger consciousness we've been talking about. How has that impacted your life, at least certainly as you now are living and have been living in Vermont? Well, I have, at the very least in the last like 20 years that I've been living here in Vermont, I've been, you know, doing my best to align myself with that kind of relationship with the natural world around me. And although I still live in the modern world, I still live in a house, I still have a computer, I have a telephone, I have a car, I drive into town to do most of my shopping. I'm still engaged in this modern life. And it makes me think about, you know, how compatible, and I think that's somewhere in your question or, or what you were asking about you know, in, in your email, how can these two, or how can one adopt a kinship worldview from within our modern dominant worldview? And are they compatible? Can they coexist 
in any kind of a way. What do you think? You're asking a great question. And you know, I think you and I have done, you know, the accommodation in terms of, you know, not completely buying into, you know, like I don't think either one of us has a cell phone, for instance. Um, at the same time, yes, we have these lovely structures that protect us from the elements. And at the same time, I know I'm continually out in nature. So there's a part of me that almost feels a little bad. And this is just my own self-judgment is what it is, that I'm not more out there. I mean, I love it when my partner and I go out and, you know, like in the fall and then we'll go and go hit Utah, Arizona. Like this year, we're going to go down and do a Grand Canyon River trip in September. And I can be totally immersed in nature. Of course, we still will have tents. We'll have people cooking for us, doing all that. But every day we will be completely surrounded by nature and to have that experience. And, you know, and, and, you know, the people that are running this trip, they make it very clear. Don't waste your time with cell phones or anything because there's no reception anyhow. So that's already been taken off the table. And this is not to say that we're going to be adopting you know, the kinship worldview by any means. But all I know is when I'm that immersed in nature, my dreams change, how I feel changes, everything tends to slow down a little bit, unless, of course, there's something extreme like a storm coming up. I was just reading recently, somebody had great experience down in the Grand Canyon that when it really starts like monsoon rains that take place this time of year, torrential rains will show up and be these, you know, not long storms, but then all of this debris will start coming down the Grand Canyon, which of course is how it was formed. And to be down there at the bottom to witness, you know, upwards to like 50 waterfalls just in the vicinity of where you are. And these aren't clean waterfalls, of course. These are waterfalls with a lot of debris, rocks, you know, one could get killed very easily. But to see nature in action like that, to me, would be utterly thrilling. And I even love it when I'm out here. You know, I always bring gear when I'm hiking. And if a storm comes by, actually it makes for better photographs, you know, because the light gets a little bit darker and there's moisture on the petals of the flowers and the leaves of the plants, all that. So I get really quite excited. And I, all I know is the more that I'm out there, the more human I feel. And then I try to bring that back into the regular world so that, for instance, at the grocery store, I can have a conversation with a checkout person, ask them how their life is doing, and try and bring whatever kind of energetic that I may have taken on out there in the woods into the modern world or the conversation I'm having with you with the music that I'm playing on the radio or the music I'm playing at home on a guitar. How can all of this stuff get sort of integrated so that... You know, I did a, a radio show recently that the new poet laureate of the United States is Ada Limon, and she had a conversation on NPR where she talked about one of her goals was trying to get people to reclaim their humanity. And I think that's really quite implied in the kinship worldview, which is how do we stay human and it just seems to be easier from my perspective when we're in more contact with nature and less contact with what I call the synthetic world. And that would include everything from social media to smartphones to all of this telemetry that's going on around us that is not part of the natural world. I love what you just brought into this conversation. To me, Nature is the very embodiment 
of the present moment. Whereas all this artificial stuff that we're creating, even though it exists in the present moment, it has no life of its own. It has no presence of its own, any meaningful kind of presence for us other than our engagement with it, which in the way you were talking about it, takes us away from nature and the most natural experience of the present moment. So, yeah, I just totally agree with you on that. Well, you know, for me, that's, and that, it's only been in the last few years, there was an essay I wrote in the last book, you know, Luminescence of the Ordinary, which talked about the soul's curriculum. And I was, for the first time, really made this discernment, Tonio, between the natural world and the synthetic world. And the synthetic world really has, that if one is living in a city, the synthetic world, it really dominates. And this includes plastics. You know, this includes all, you know, like all the concrete, all, you know, all that sort of stuff. And the natural world really becomes minimized. So, you know, and I hate to get too reductionist about it, but there's some part of my body that's very sensitive because my greatest resources were in nature. You know, that was back in the days where parents were delighted to get rid of us as kids out of the house. And we had woods that were very close by. This was in the Hudson Valley of New York. And I would spend whole days out there in the woods, you know, building dams, you know, in the creek and, you know, just drifting around, seeing what flowers were popping that particular day. And it became literally the greatest. And this is how I use resource in a different way than I think most people are used to became this resource of loving for me because it was always there. It was always present. I mean, I love there's a precept in here, you know, where the Native American writing talked about how nature never lies, ever, 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 ever lies. And there was such a beauty to that truth. And that's what I discovered firsthand. So for me, it became my essential family right from the very beginning, just so that I would have something I could always turn to. And that would include even before I was really getting to a maturation with certain emotions like grief, like anger, things like that, you know, that I realize, and I certainly realize this now, nature as a resource for me, and not as a resource, but it really is that larger consciousness. I can go out there and it's like I was talking to someone on the trail the other week and explaining, you know, the term forest bathing that the Japanese have come up with and going out there. And it really does from an energetic point of view, it cleans your field just by being out there. Even if you're only, you know, doing this once a month or something like that, nature always makes things a little bit better. And of course, you still have to be prepared. You still have to know what's going on. I mean, I've been out there so often that say when I'm up on the ridges here, I'm paying attention to the sky all the time, listening for thunder, making sure that I don't want to be exposed if lightning's going to show up, because I know the consequences of what happens with that. So that's how it all evolved for me. And that's why I still keep in touch, because it's really, strangely as this may sound, it is almost like my primary family, because maybe it's given me more than anything that my family could provide in terms of a worldview. Mm-hmm. And this r- reminded me of an early spiritual teacher. He said that the city is the real jungle, you know, yeah. like the proving ground for our experience and 
cultivating that awareness of presence and ability to be in the present moment under the stress and, and duress of the city, under the conditions of the city, and, you know, living our aspiration, living the, the worldview, the, you could call it the kinship worldview, but also maybe call it a more holistic, more spiritual, more humane worldview of living love and compassion and caring for the world around us, which includes all of the people around us and the environment, even within a city, even though it's concrete and pavement, a responsible person is not going to just drop trash on the ground, not going to litter, is going to still act responsibly. So this connects with the notion that I don't see us going backward towards living a more traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle, that bringing in a kinship worldview or more holistic, more humane worldview into our modern lives is not going to be moving back in time. It's going to be moving forward in time in a way integrating with our technological world, with our cities, with our proliferation of artificial things and whatever. And that's where we're headed. I'm reminded of something that Asia Suler wrote about in her book about the Taoist perspective, that the notion of rebirth, that we're continually being rebirthed in the world, including not just in the reincarnation thing. I'm not even sure that they believe in reincarnation, in those kind of terms, but that when we evolve in a sense, when we integrate new experience into our lives, as we gain wisdom, when we reconnect with the fundamental Tao that existed before, you know, the 10,000 things emerged out of that, we don't just go back to that primordial state of unity and presence. We go forward integrating that experience of primordial wisdom and presence within the newer context of the world around us. Yes, and very much like A.J. Sula was talking about, it's like there's those two words at the end of Wendell Berry's poem, you know, the poem Manifesto, Mad Farmers, Liberation Front. The two words were practice resurrection, which is exactly is what's happening in nature all the time. You know, like this year, I've noticed there's certain flowers that just really didn't quite make it, like the mule's ears. They didn't quite make it up on the ridges this year, and I think it was because it was so dry. Other things, Columbine had a very short season. On the other hand, for the first time ever, Tony, in 20 years, I did a hike the other day where I was finding wild raspberries at the bottom of the hike and still finding wild strawberries up in the higher meadows. And I've never experienced that before. So here's this new resurrection. And it's always so fascinating to me of, well, so how is it going to be this time? It's sort of like when, when I approach, say, performing as a musician, that there are tunes, obviously, I've had in a repertoire for years and years and years. And when I play it again, like I was playing with a friend last night, how am I going to approach it differently 
So it's just not the same old thing that I'm not just not doing the default mode, which I think is how we all do, myself included, live parts of our lives because there's a certain stability with a comfort zone. On the other hand, there's this other thing of, well, how can I keep reinventing myself in the process, particularly as I get older, I see people around me, I'll be turning 70 in October, and I see a lot of people falling apart at this age. And I'm thinking, falling apart, falling apart, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to keep it together. So I can, for instance, go do a Grand Canyon trip, or I can go hiking up to, say, Wheeler Peak or something like that, and do it as long as it still feels good. Yeah, exactly. And we're always reinventing ourselves. I think the question is, what can we bring along with our perspective or add to our perspective to enrich that reinventing or rebirthing process? Kind of in in the way that Asia Suler talked about life emerging out of death. You know, no matter how dire the circumstances, Something new is always emerging out of it. And what can we bring to that equation to help embody a new reinvention? Yeah, and I think, at least for me, and this was hinted at in Restoring the Kinship Worldview book, but you know, I had a chapter in the curriculum on curiosity. I think that is still so huge. You know, For instance, my partner has a grandson and she'll send me videos of him. And he's a year and a half old to see his literally unbounded curiosity at this age about everything, including, you know, like maybe even, you know, getting a bruise or something like that. There's always checking the world out to see. So what exactly does this world have to offer? And, you know, unfortunately, I see for as a lot of people get older, that curiosity tends to wane that once they come up with whatever worldview that they have adapted or who knows just bought into that things tend to concretize but i think one can also make it a practice and who knows whether you're going to do it through exercise or meditation or conversation connection all these different various ways of doing it how do you keep that curiosity going so that you're going to feel just as much alive in your 60s say as you would in your single digits. Well, what what distinguishes a person who is curious from a person who is not curious? What do you think it is that differentiates that in a person's life? We all start out being curious. Yeah. Well, there's a quote I have in a chapter on culture, and you probably remember it from Doris Lessing, and she's basically apologizing in this quote about our system of education and it's basically a system of indoctrination and she's apologizing saying it's just the best we've come up with but you know understand it is indoctrination and that there are many 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 other perspectives available out there you know then i think they make a big point in restoring the kinship worldview and it's a good point which is that we now have basically factory style education system that is really just you know, sort of like stamping the same stamp on every student, you know, in the course of education, because, you know, the, this whole thing, remember, there was not that long ago when that was really all about math and reading. You know, that was the whole focus. Had nothing to do with curiosity or imagination or that old concept 
of you know the Latin, you know, the origins of education is educare, which means to bring forth. And the idea, how does education, the educational system, bring forth the individual gifts that are endowed inside of each one of us? And that has been, for the most part, I would say eliminated. Now there's a whole indoctrination of, so how, what kind of lifestyle do you want to have? And therefore, what kind of education should I get that would ensure a certain amount of income to have that lifestyle that I want to have? And, you know, there's still people, I think, that quite accidentally, you know, for instance, my partner's son-in-law is a very talented chef. And he went to school in New York City for it. And it's just something he's really, really, really good at. And his heart is connected. And, and they talk about one of the precepts of, you know, being connected to the heart when you're doing things. When the heart's connected, and unfortunately, our educational system, I don't know how it is in other countries, but I know here that the heart is not really part of the curricula. How are we going to keep that heart connected? So whatever it is you choose to do, whether you're going to be a great listener, who knows by being a therapist, or that you have fantastic hands and you'll either become a massage therapist or a musician, any of these things that your heart is connected so that you don't end up in that place that a lot of people get to, you know, at some point in their lives and saying, you know, this just isn't making any sense to me what I'm doing. Why am I doing this? And some people will even take the very sad choice of committing suicide saying, I don't know who I really am and what's the point of sticking around? Yeah, and I heard something on the radio yesterday or the day before. They were talking about how a Republican governor, it might have been DeSantos in Florida, who is trying to change the mission statement of the state university system from you know education being the discovery of truth. And he wanted, or he's trying to, and, and he may have already succeeded. I, I don't even know. I don't re quite remember changing that to a mission statement of preparing people to fill jobs. <laughs> I mean, talk about a lifeless worldview. Talk about robots. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's the old Prussian education model of creating good jackbooted cogs in the wheel. Yeah, and there's no humanity, and I think that was again, back to the book we've been discussing in this conversation, there's so much humanity in all of their precepts and the 28 precepts that they have in there, whether a non-hierarchical, for instance, design, you know, for communities, uh, you know, how to make decisions, you know, how to be in touch with, you know, the laws of nature. There's humanity is always in there in each and every one, like even that lovely, simple precept of humor is essential, that here's that humanity. And this is that synthetic world that I was referring to earlier. The synthetic world tends to, even though humanity participates, but it really wants to almost take over. You know, it's like that whole idea of, you know, artificial intelligence starting to potentially run our lives and making decisions. Well, unfortunately, there isn't any humanity as much as we can try and come up with the best algorithms. It's still not going to happen. If you want humanity, it's either going to be found through love. You're going to go to the arts. 
You're going to go out into nature and just be reminded, you know, and I loved how Asia Suler continually kept reminding in her conversation, how do we do whatever self-healing to get to discover or to keep reinventing who we really are? Yeah. Yeah. So and I think we are really at that very interesting point, which is a question of, are we going to start perhaps re-navigating to get back in touch with that humanity? In other words, Karen, you know, it's interesting, like reading about the floods in Kentucky, this amazing surge of humanity. And I imagine that was probably there all along prior to the floods because there was a community and a tight-knit community, but how people are showing up from elsewhere to help in the rescue efforts. People are creating you know, places for people to stay and collecting food and doing all that. That in crisis, humanity really does show up quite a bit here. It's been showing up over in Ukraine, showing up all in you know, different places. And then we end up with a synthetic world that does what it can, you know, the show of force, you know, like in the Taiwan Straits and that kind of stuff. And you're like, oh my God, are we still really talking about war at this point in our human history? Are we really talking about war? you know, in yet another form. Your nature doesn't really do war. Yes, there are species that will attack other species. And yes, such thing as forest fires, although the big fires out here were all pretty much human formed this spring, you know, in New Mexico, had nothing to do with nature doing it itself. But again, you know, I, I love that it really can get quite simple. When you think about nature, it is like, I love that term. I used it in a curriculum somewhere. Nature is this great example of the cooperation of chaos. And it all cooperates. It all figures out a way to survive. And yes, there are certain things. Some species will take over others, you know, invasive things and all that. And there's continual adaptation. And there is a certain point where nature seems to know what's enough. And when it comes to those three things, that's where we, the synthetic world, this kind of modern human world has lost touch. And that's where restoring the kinship worldview is trying to get us back into that adaptation, understanding the cooperation of chaos, and just getting in sync with how this whole large thing actually works. Because from my perspective, Antonio, the earth has been doing this for millions of years. And we're just a little blip on the radar in terms of a species. Aren't we going to pay attention if our mother, i.e. Mother Earth, has been doing this for so long successfully? Geez, maybe she's got a clue. Yeah, and I was thinking about the synthetic, you know, the technology that we're creating. All that stuff are tools. They're meant to be things that we use to enhance our ability to function in the world. But I think in our culture, what's happening is that we're making it into the very foundation of our lives. And we're, we're no longer recognizing that these are just tools. They become the underlying foundation that we cannot even live without. Yeah, and I think this speaks again to what Asia Suler was saying, that because we're not really taught at an early age this process of discovering who we are because that's an ongoing work of art in itself 
you know, that what I was, say, 20 years ago is not who I am right now. But having that as a foremost consideration, knowing who you really are so that when something from the synthetic world shows up, does it become a tool in your life or does it become a distraction? Does it become something that actually will take over your identity? And this is where the soul view gets interesting to me, which is that the soul right from the beginning is saying, you know, identity may be what you are, but it's not who you are. And this is where a lot of worldviews, I think, get lost, that they'll get hung up on the identity thing, which is how we end up with war, which is how we end up with all these divisions, you know, racism, prejudice, all that, that once identity is put in its proper place, knowing that, well, yes, this is what the ego does. Yes, this is, I do have a particular color skin. I am a particular gender. Even that's become fluid lately, which is very interesting. That once you can take identity, put it kind of, you know, not the focus, then all of a sudden it really opens things up of, so who am I that even aside from my identity, and this is not to belittle it or to forget about it or anything, you know, these things that I have inherited biologically are just what I am, but who am I really underneath all of that stuff? What Am I a kind person? Am I a loving person? Am I a caring person? Am I somebody who would be willing, for instance, see somebody who is in distress on the side of the road, would I pull off in my car and help that person in distress? You know, there was a kid not long ago, Tony, about a month when I was grocery shopping, it was a young guy, I think he lives out on the Mesa, so he clear he didn't have a lot of money. You could tell he had this old, old, old Toyota pickup. And I could hear as I pulled into my parking space, when he turned on the ignition, you got that click, click, click sound. So probably had a drained out battery. So I went in shopping. I didn't initially do anything. And he was still out when I got back out. And he said, could you, do you have a jumper cable? And I said, of course. And so I had to rearrange how my car was parked. I jumped his car. And as I was doing this, he says, you know, thank you so much for helping me out. And I said, listen, you know, if we're not helping each other, what are we doing? You know, and I told him there's that great Hafez poem. It's very short and it's called A Great Need. And in the poem, it's one of the few I know by heart, but the whole poem is, out of a great need, we are all holding hands and climbing. Not loving is a letting go. Listen, the terrain around here is far too difficult for that. And I think that's closer to who we really all are, is that when we are really in that more heart-centered place, we're still, of course, doing what we can to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of the people around us. Otherwise, we'll get lost in the distraction of the synthetic world in which people, and you know, you certainly see this like in politics and a lot of instances in our modern world where it's like, why aren't people helping each other? I mean, when I heard John Stewart's speech this week that was defending the veterans and that bill that was you know, in Congress, in the Senate in particular, and there were a number of senators that were opposed to this bill of men's lives and women's lives who have been impacted by the fire pits that were in Iraq, and who was trying to rectify that situation. And John Stewart held those senators' feet to the fire, and he said, you all here in your air-conditioned rooms and offices have no concept of the people out there that were defending 
whatever in our country and putting their lives on the line and you want to not give them the resources they need to try and live a healthy life again. And it turned out the thing passed overwhelmingly, but only after he had shamed them to do this. It's like, well, aren't we going to be taking care of the very people that we sent out there to, in theory, protect us? Although who knows if that was ever happening in Iraq. So, you know, that humanity, that's where I think we're seeing we're at this very interesting juncture in time. To what extent are we going to take that more of a direction back to the humanity and back to the kinship worldview? Because that's what nature, I think, is trying to teach us in a certain way. How do we be human in this world versus the synthetic world, which wants to get us lost in all these other things of, well, you know, AI is going to solve it, you know, or we're going to have a technology that'll take care of climate change, which all in essence says we don't have to take responsibility as human beings. Well, that's what the kinship worldview has at one of its real core things, even though they don't say it. There's a responsibility for living in this world What are you going to do to fulfill those responsibilities? Well, that makes me think about how war, as we know it, is actually a human construct. It's an artificial construct out of our notions of boundaries and ownership and politics. And and identity. And and identity and and all those kind of small-minded artificial constructs. And we're now moving toward, and we've been moving toward for the last several years, a kind of cultural civil war in the political arena, but it's exploding outside of the politics. The politicians are milking it to create like a wildfire out of it. But there are a lot of people who are jumping on board and engaging in this kind of warfare based upon these very narrow-minded, artificial, ideological, political perspectives. And this morning, this is Friday, this morning's show was an interview with a Southern white man who grew up in a family that had hundreds of years of slave-owning history and this book was about his, you know, becoming aware of and coming to terms with his own whiteness and his sense of responsibility in relation to all of that. And talking about how in the South, there is a whole culture of ideological culture of denial of reality, you know, of humanity, of clinging to these old notions of white privilege, white dominance, white supremacy, but at the same time denying it and trying to make sure, you know, trying to legislate any talk or education about it out of existence so that they can continue to dominate the way they have for hundreds of years. And that is fueling this new civil war that appears to be emerging in this country and seems to be accelerating in that direction, which when I asked him 
his thoughts about it from his perspective of growing up in the middle of it and actually covering these issues and being in the thick of it, he said he was utterly terrified about the prospect of this. And here in Vermont, I am so insulated from all of that. And yet in another part of the world, or actually in our country, is becoming like what's happening in other parts of the world that we see as so foreign, like what's happening in Ukraine and what was happening in Central America during the Reagan administration and other wars of cultural supremacy of one group over another. I'm seeing it from the outside, from a very insulated outside perspective. And yet from the news and from talking with this guest that I had on my show this morning, something's happening that is terrifying people who know about it. And we have been talking about, you know, what can we do in the face of what's happening? What's our responsibility in terms of this? What can we do as an individual in the midst of all of this? What is possible other than, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh's recommendation to return to the present moment where everything is fine, which can very easily sound like a total cop-out. What else can we do? What can we do? I mean, yes, there are lots of people who are, you know, actively engaging in activism, political activism, social justice activism. Asia Suler talked about how she was very strongly motivated to be an activist to the point where she completely burned herself out because she felt like her whole world and her whole sense of survival depended upon achieving the goals of her mission of activism. And she got totally, totally burned out by that to the point where she ended up with these terrible health conditions in which her body just shut her down and said, no. You know, what can we as individuals do? You know, as individuals, we are part of groups, we're part of communities, we're part of societies, we're part of nations. But what what is it that we can actually do in the face of what seems to be a runaway freight train in a couple of different ways at the same time, or a few different ways at the same time? I mean, climate change, political polarization, economic pandemic things. What is going on? <laughs> What's going well, on? Yeah. Well, to go back to even the very beginning of our conversation today, Tonio, this whole idea of worldviews, you know, I know they, they make a point in restoring the kinship worldview that there's really just two worldviews to consider. I think it's a little more complicated than that myself. But I think there's a certain level of personal responsibility And it's really very helpful. And again, whatever way works, and this is I'm I'm trying to shift, you know, because, you know, I see the ego centered world doing its crazy thing, which are all the things you're talking about. And when people get embroiled in identities, you know, like I was a slave owner and I'm proud of it, you know, that kind of thing that once it gets shifts. And I think that was part of the point of restoring the kinship worldview, the book, which was wants to get into more of this soul centered point of view where identities, you know, don't become the only thing on the page. And particularly when one considers the state of nature, if the state of nature 
isn't upheld, restored in whatever term you want to use, all the other issues go away. It's silly to be talking about whether you're going to be talking about abortion or immigration or any of those things, because personally, I think from a political point of view, that the powers that be are doing a phenomenal job of distracting people with some of these issues when the real issues have more to do with our humanity, who's getting enough food, and how are we going to be taking care of each other. And right now, by keeping people distracted with these quote-unquote cultural wars, then we don't have to focus on the really important things or the fact that there are certain people making gobs of money and other people that are in abject poverty. That wasn't the whole idea of this democracy from the very beginning, even though that already seemed to be part of the very system as it was set up. So I think, at least the way that I view it, is to what extent can I keep trying to get back into the soul center point of view, whether it's through nature, whether it's through meditating, whether it's talking to you, whether it's going swimming, whether it's loving my partner, the people in my lives, you know, all the plants that I have in my lives, all, you know, all these things that are happening around me. How can I keep reconnecting to that inherent love inside there? And remember, what was it? Is it a Rumi or a Hafez poem where he talks about where he basically says, you know, whatever you do, where you pray today will have an impact on somebody somewhere else in the world that you will never see. And I think we had talked about this in a previous conversation. We have to keep refining and evolving our presence. And that presence energetically, and we don't really have gauges for this kind of thing, that presence has more of an impact than we'll ever know. And this showed up in another way, in like a shadow version of this. I have a friend that has gone through, she's had three very close people, including an ex-husband that have committed suicide in her life. And I remember her telling me once during a phone conversation, she says, we have no idea how many people have been impacted until that suicide takes place. And she said, she had no idea. There were hundreds of people that were impacted because that's how many people those three had been involved with and connected with in the course of their lives. So I think even though you and I may feel like we only have a handful of people listening to, say, our respective radio shows, that just the energetic of putting certain ideas out there and a certain feeling of caring for the world and wanting this beautiful, gorgeous, unbelievable planet to still do its incredible thing, that that is enough. I mean, there's that great little quote from Meister Eckhart where he says, if you just say thank you, that will be enough. There's a whole precept in restoring the kinship worldview, and this is huge, is on gratitude. Always having gratitude. That is enough to change things around. And I'm not waking up in the morning, Tonio, to say, how am I going to change the world? All I want to know is, how do I keep refining this kind of crude thing inside of me called Rick? And how can I, you know, it just feels so good to be in that loving place. And all I know is when I'm in that loving place, the world seems to respond accordingly. When I'm not in that loving place, the world responds that way as well. So that's what I tend to do, that it's really kind of a personal thing. And of course, I still am quite admiring of all these precepts. But for me, because I didn't grow up in a community that 
could stand around me and help me get into this larger, beautiful worldview that they're suggesting. I've taken on this other perspective of, okay, so if the first work is inside, even in relationship, if something comes up in relationship with my partner, it's like I have to go inside first instead of starting shame and blame and see what's really happening. So if nothing else, I can just explain, this is what's going on inside of me. Tell me what you think and we can have a real conversation. How does that sound? Sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, and don't you feel like with all the shows that you've been doing, Tonio, isn't I think that there's almost been a kind of a refinement for the few years that I've known you. There's been a refinement in terms of, I mean, of obviously you're so gracious in terms of how many different types of authors that you bring onto your show, but there has been a kind of refinement heading towards and I think that's why, for instance, this particular book resonated so much for you, because the shows keep kind of heading in that direction. Does that seem true or not? Well, it seems like life is heading in that direction. You know, yeah. the fundamental crisis point of life on this planet seems to be moving toward that crux, that point. Yeah. You know, the, those two almost diametrically opposed worldviews. And reflecting back on something you mentioned, and also, you know, where I, I said that just being present, just engaging in the present moment might seem like a cop out in the face of what's happening in the world. I still feel very strongly from my direct experience that when we engage in presence, in the fullness of the present moment, simply as presence, nothing more, that that's where our true humanity arises out of very naturally. Yes, and, and to support what you're saying, the idea, and I, you know, I don't know what your experience is there, but I can tell you in my own life, and particularly with all the kind of distractions that are happening in our world today, I do not know that many people that are fully present. And to be fully present, at least to the extent that we can be, takes a lot of work and a lot of responsibility and it's constantly cleaning. It's like the Ho'oponopono idea. How do we keep cleaning these things to keep resetting so that we can really truly be in that present moment with what might be happening? Then you are in that kind of consciousness of nature of, okay, here we are. How are we going to deal with everything? And it could be the weather. It could be, you know, somebody that has just polluted the environment. How are we going to deal with all this stuff? This is the improvisation of every moment of every one of our lives. It takes phenomenal effort to do that. There's no cop out because I don't know that many people who are truly present that when I'm having a conversation, they can be looking at me straight in the eye and I know that they are there in front of me. Exactly. Cleansing the lens of our worldview so that we can see what is actually right here in front of us. Not all the artificial constructs and, and the fears and worries and, and the desires and the greed and, and all the other ego-based human condition things, but just what's real. And we, as a culture, we have become so divorced from any notion of what is real, of, of simple presence, of reality in the present moment separate yep. from all of the rest of the ego-based insanity. And you know, ego maybe 
partly what with, with, with this climate crisis is happening, for those people that are there firsthand, whether in flooding, whether in fires, whether in typhoons, things like that, that you don't have a choice but to get into the present moment. You know, just like there was an incident I just read in the paper yesterday, the local paper, which had to do with a husband and a wife that I think they're in their 60s, were walking their dog. And this was at six o'clock at night, only last week. The husband got struck by lightning. This is right outside of the town of Taos, so not far from where I live. Got struck by lightning. And the wife, of course, he's on the ground. He's out. And the wife starts doing CPR. And I think she called 911 first. So the ambulance shows up. And she's doing CPR. The ambulance EMT show up. And they are wondering how they're going to get a helicopter in to fly this guy down to Albuquerque. And there's all this thunder and lightning happening. And the wife did not let up. She was so present of getting so moved by telling the story. She gets so present that even as the EMTs are trying to make this decision, he comes back. He gets back to consciousness. He can't talk, but he can at least respond by nodding his head. Now there again, crisis really will bring us into our presence. You know, if we choose to step up to whatever the circumstance requires, and maybe that's a lot of this craziness is like, we're going to step up no matter what is going to happen to our reputations, how we might look, anything. We have to step up because this is what the moment is asking of us. I know that when I've been in the forest, and this was way back years ago in the Gore Range up around Vale, and we were doing mushrooms, and I was with a friend from Vermont. We're hiking around, and we're in the high country, and this storm came in fast. And there was literally lightning striking within maybe 10 yards around us. And there was a point where we got like as close to some tree trunks because there was a forest nearby. We get close to these pine trees. It just stayed there frozen because that was all we could do. We knew if we moved at all, we were targets. And that really woke us up fast. I mean, the lightning was so close. The hair on like my arms and legs was like sticking straight out because there was so much electricity everywhere all around us. So I really think it's such an interesting time in the sense of there's all of this crazy stuff happening in the world. To what extent are we going to step up and be present and improvise and adapt and do all those things? And with any luck, you know, find some loving in the process so that we can figure out a way. And maybe I'll make it the next time. Maybe I won't. I don't know. I even sent an email to my son kind of kidding, but half serious, said, I'm going to do this Grand Canyon trip. Here's my password to the computer. Here's like the combination to get into the garage from the outside, you know, for the garage door opener, all this sort of stuff. I said, so if anything happens, now you have full access because you're going to inherit it all anyhow. And if I end up going that way in the water, it's like I can think of about a thousand worse ways to go, to be surrounded by all that beauty as I go. I said, I would take that and I would be okay with it. Yeah, perhaps this crisis and insanity that we've been lamenting about is actually the path we must follow. Yes. And that this is our only true way through, you know, to evolve. This may be our soul's journey. Exactly. And that's where, you know, engaging in the power of presence could help us perhaps in having a more expansive worldview that could even embrace the insanity that's happening in the world today. Yeah. I mean, I even think, and this is just 
not to get into politics exactly, but I'm thinking of somebody like Liz Cheney and her performance with the January 6th committee. She's just interested in the truth and she's willing to risk her whole political career because she is convinced that this concept of democracy is worth pursuing. And to me, she's a real heroine for going to that extent that she's willing to lose that identity, the identity of her as being a powerful politician, whatever, for the sake of getting to the truth and saving this ideal that may still have some pieces of love involved that will have to do with our evolution. Mm -hmm. And truth comes in some strange forms these days. <laughs> well, in some hard realities, you know, seeing when I saw that whole little thing about Alex Jones and this trial going on down in Texas and how his attorney had mistakenly sent the last two years worth of his emails and text messages over to the opposing attorney which basically showed how much that Alex Jones had perjured himself. I was like, wow, look how that showed up. <laughs> that was like, well, what happened there? And, and it's just always fascinating because the thing that I see from, and again, this is the indigenous point of view, but I think it's also a soul-centered point of view. The things that are based on love, the things that are based on truth, they are sustainable. The other things, the lies, the misconceptions, you know, the, all those conspiracy theories, all that sort of stuff, they're simply not sustainable because they're not based on truth or love. Yep. And they'll go the way of the dinosaur. Yeah, exactly. So here, a short poem from David Wagoner is called Lost. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Mm, that is such a perfect note to end on. Yes, because I think like what Asia Suler was talking about, the consciousness of the earth is in fact the larger consciousness, not us humans. And the more that we can be in touch with that consciousness, the better things are going to work out. Yep. So on that note, Tonio, I'm so glad I found you as someone who can talk at this level. And I hope that the rest of the world, that they let that consciousness find them so they can have a great life as well. Mm. Yep. It's so wonderful to have conversations like this and to have someone like you to have this conversation with. Tonio, you're the best. Thanks. Stay on the air, brother. It's what the world needs. <laughs> it's how it keeps kind of doing its thing. Well, thank you again for joining me and sharing all of this with our listeners. Much love, Tonio. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. My guest has been Rick Halterman. He's the author of 
Curriculum of the Soul, and Luminescence of the Ordinary. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.